Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, John Cross of the Daily Mirror, Jordan Jarrett-Bryan of Channel 4 News, and a special guest, Anton Ferdinand, whose new documentary raises profound questions about racism in football and society. We'll get into those in some depth later, but first, another vital debate. What will it need for football to take head injuries seriously? Worrying news this morning, Wolves have announced that Raul Jimenez fractured his skull against Arsenal last night. David Luiz was allowed to play on after their sickening collision. He passed protocols, but is that the point? He was obviously dazed and had blood seeping from a head wound. We know the risks the damage that can be caused. Too many former players are suffering from dementia. So why doesn't the game carry out its duty of care, John? I was staggered when I watched the game and and, and saw it because there's something eerie at, at the moment about the empty stadiums and being able then to hear so clearly. You know, I just got in, actually. I'd been at Southampton, Man United, driven home and, and we'd just turned on the TV to watch. And you could so hear, you know, that that collision, that that smash of heads come across. And it was absolutely sickening. And you realised immediately, this is going to be a very, very serious injury. Raul Jimenez, you know, your thoughts immediately turned to him. And, and again, this morning, because, you know, fractured skull is going to be a, a huge injury for him to overcome. I'm sure he'll be determined to do that. And I'm sure we'll all wish him the very best in in, in in being able to do that. But then the fallout immediately afterwards, I think, was when you saw it, particularly, you know, people commenting on it, you know, Arteta being questioned about it afterwards. And then indeed the kind of reaction on social media was how on earth has David Luiz with that bandaged, bleeding head been allowed to carry on? And look, I, I'll admit it, I do know Gary O'Driscoll, the Arsenal club doctor. I, you know, I think he's one of the most respected club doctors in the game. And ironically, he's one of the loudest, most important voices on trying to change concussion protocols and change them for the better. So it did sort of slightly annoy me then to see people jump on and sort of say, oh, you know, it's, it's ridiculous that he's been allowed to play on and, and, and so on. Well, I would argue that the doctor is only following the club protocols and any club doctor, and especially him, would be their first concern would be for the players' welfare and health. But that that is almost the point, isn't it? 
that basically the concussion protocols and everything must be skewed if they are leaving it in any way. And I was talking to someone, you know, Wolves Connections this morning and they were saying how shocked they people were that it's still in this day and age that it's left in any way for a player to say, yeah, I'm okay, I'll play on. And then also for a set of protocols that then give a club doctor who is clearly going to be under pressure, although I think that most of the club doctors would be professionally enough to resist that pressure, but the pressure is still there for them to make that decision to allow another player to carry on and potentially do more damage. You know, we've seen so many campaigns. We've seen the recent incident, I, I think a couple of seasons ago, we had something similar at Spurs, didn't we, with Vertonghen, who, who tried and failed to carry on and the fallout of that. And it, it was deemed then not to have suffered, a, by medical ruling, deemed not to have suffered a concussion injury. I mean, I just don't know quite where we're going with this because... I think that sooner or later, you've just got to take it out of the hands of those on the field and say, we've got to change this completely. I mean, it created absolute outrage amongst American viewers who've got a completely different set of protocols in the NFL who would never dream of allowing either player to carry on. And and I just think it's totally unfair, not just on the players, but on the medical professionals as well, because... I don't know in what setup you can possibly argue that the protocols are right, that, that, that they would allow Lewis to carry on and play on. And Arteta was defending that decision afterwards, saying that he was only substituted because the cut on his head was causing him discomfort and he certainly wasn't concussed. I think it's wrong and it's skewed and we're not going to improve until we address it fundamentally. We have to use this as a point in time to change that. I'd agree with that. And I would also echo your best wishes to Raul Jimenez. Jordan, we all know that football moves at absolutely glacial pace when it wants to, when it has to change. IFAB, it's them again, folks, have spent about 18 months, the last 18 months, worrying about trialling concussion substitutions. They're, they feel, oh, well, players and managers will explo- exploit that for tactical purposes. Surely there's no need to trial these concussion substitutes. Just come into line with other sports and do it, isn't it? No, I would agree with that. Definitely agree with that. And I, I think and it's interesting that we've got Anton with us today because I think we're going to speak a little bit about race and the issue now of duty of care, I think is one that stretches to, 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 to black players and racism as well. But I think here, protecting players and their, their physical well-being, I think is a must. And the game has to take take control of this because something really sad and bad is going to happen if we don't if we don't address this I do understand the idea and the logic of the idea that managers may use them for tactical gain that may well happen but I think that if there's any chance of protecting players from the worst case happening I think it's something we just have to go forward with I listened to the radio this morning and an interesting point was made about um, independent doctors and John mentions the idea that some are under pressure from their clubs and the idea being that you know let's take my club, Arsenal, for example, I'm an Arsenal fan. If David Luiz uh, is in that situation and it's fast forward a week, it's a North London derby and he's our best player on the pitch. We need him on the pitch getting back out there. My thinking is, I don't think we even need independent doctors. If you are a doctor at, for example, just say Arsenal and uh, John referenced the, the, the head physio, the head doctor there, my license as a doctor is more important than my job. 
So, and not to mention my conscience. So there's no way as a doctor, even if I'm employed by a club, I'm going to allow myself to be pressured into putting that player back on the pitch because if the worst comes, if the worst happens, you know, after the game, 24 hours later, and something awful happens to that player, if I'm David Luiz, I'm not suing Arsenal, I'm suing that doctor. So I think even the idea of having independent doctors is a mute one because I just think any doctor that that, that, that respects their profession would understand that the, that the player's well-being has to come first, no matter what pressures are coming from their manager or from the club. So I think the game has to intervene here now, because if we don't, we're going to see something really sad happen very soon. Yeah, I'd echo you know, John's earlier point as well about the standard of, of medical care in the game is is exceptional, and the people who deliver that care are exceptional as well. I think what we've what we're trying to do here is is almost legislate for human nature and in that sense anton could you give us a player's perspective on this because you know people in professional sport that i know rugby players footballers they admit actually yeah i do play with head injuries or or potential concussions because it's my job and i'm fearing for my place Have, have you ever played on when you shouldn't have done no, not to do with concussion. I'm I'm lucky. I'm one of the lucky ones who wasn't has never experienced that, so to speak. But in terms of as you're speaking about players having that type of situation where it's left in their hands, I think it needs to be taken away from that because I know firsthand as a player, I wouldn't want to come off the pitch. It's in me to be a warrior, it's in me to go, do you know what? My ego will not allow me to come off the pitch. And I think that's the big, the, the key word there is ego. A lot of it is your ego as a footballer to go, do you know what? I can't be seen to be weak. And that's what you're brought up. When you're coming through the ranks, that's what you're brought up to, 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 to express. There's no weakness in me. If you get kicked, don't show that it hurts you because that's a weakness. If you get hit and you go down, you get straight back up. If you don't do that, you're showing a weakness. So I think when you and I think it's across the board, not just talking about head injuries. I think it's across the board with with other things that come that happen in football. If you if you leave it down to the player, the player's always going to go back to what he knows. I can't show weakness, and I think that's where the problem is. Take so, it out of the hands of the footballer and the person that's playing whatever sport it is, and make sure that they're safe. Jordan. Yeah, I, I guess the difficulty is, for, uh, if I'm going to be slightly sympathetic to the authorities, is knowing what constitutes a player having to come off. So I think, as John referenced, when you see a guy with a bandage around his head and his blood coming through, that for me is a, is is not even a question. He has to come off the pitch. But do you know where, where where does that line start? Is it if two players contest for a ball and one player goes down, he's down for thirty seconds? Does that mean he comes off? Is it two minutes? Is it five minutes? Is it 10 minutes uh, 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 what what determines no 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 he has to come off now I think that is the question I think has to be answered here because some players will contest for headers and collide but not necessarily go down does that mean that they haven't got any repercussions for later on so I think working out what what constitutes this guy has to come off the pitch now I think is what they have to answer what is really alarming to me is that the substitutes rule for, for the concussion is they seem to have completely, IFAB seem to have completely missed the point. And therefore, obviously, the FA are obviously bound by what IFAB dictate. And so the trial is an extra substitute. It's not actually a concussion substitute. 
you know, let's get let's get that right. So the concussion substitute last night would have meant that Rob Holding comes on for ten minutes, and while David Luiz is is assessed in the in the dressing room, and it basically allows a bit of time, a bit of space. And then I don't, I don't personally don't think that basically, if he was allowed to play on, if he decided to play on, if the doctor deems him fit to play on, that then I think that you get less criticism. The doctor has made a less you know, controversial decision, if you like. He's taken time over it. And uh, the, the point is, at the moment, is that the extra substitute for the concussion one is one extra player. And that just completely misses the point. And you had this thing with, wasn't just Jimenez last night, I think the, the, the one that I sort of, the game was, I, I remember so clearly, because it was right in front of us, was, I think, Vertonghen, Spurs. Well, I mean, Vertonghen came off and went back on again and played on again and was physically sick. I, I I just don't understand where what needs to be said by the medical experts if you're reading so much good coverage at the moment that, that they're not picking up that there's a very, very specific point and argument around the concussion substitutes, which is different from the extra substitute. And having an extra sub on the bench doesn't solve anything, not at all. It will just be used, I think, in this kind of five substitute debate, it really will. It'll be as simplistic as that. We're missing the point here totally. And doesn't that just sum up the kind of football's attitude towards concussion? That really they don't they want to be seen to be doing the right thing, but they're not actually gonna completely listen to the medical and really scientific argument. And that I think is just so frustrating, but so so typifies the whole debate on this. I, I, I think hearing what you're saying, it just alludes back to the pressure that the actual medic, the the, the, the people that, the experts, the medical experts, it, it alludes to the pressure that they're under. So I'm in favour of, of a roll-on sub who can mm. go on for 10 minutes, which gives the medics that time to actually make a, a proper decision. You know, I think there is pressure on them because as a manager and as a club, you want your best players on there. And if it's your best player, you want to get them on as quick as possible. You know, you want to get them back on as quick as possible. So I think if there was a roll-on sub who could come on for, for 10 minutes or even 15 to 20 minutes, just to just so the doctor has time to make the decision that is needed and the proper decision that potentially could save somebody from being seriously, seriously hurt. I think that's where that, that roll-on sub should be used. Jordan, let's look at the authorities' response to the whole dementia debate. It's been pretty typical in as much as the the PFA, the FA, they've all been very quick to claim in what, in my view, is undeserved credit. When you look at the issue, it's been consistently downplayed along down the years and probably wouldn't have got the prominence that it's had. But for really pioneering work by people like Dawn Astle and Chris Sutton and, and journos like Sam Peters, Jeremy Wilson, Nick Harris... Surely the PFA have got to be more proactive in all this, haven't they? No, they do. And, and, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think what you're saying is what I feel. The FA are trying to piggyback off the <laughs> off of the work that, as you mentioned, has been done so well by by, by others. They've been very slow in 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 reacting on on this subject. And I think you know the, the governors of of anything of a country of a sport 
one of the first two priorities is safety of its people, its members, and protecting its members. And I think that this is a bit of a, this is something that I don't think should even really have got this far. I don't understand why it's taking this long to kind of get to the point where, where, where we're seriously considering the, the long-term well-being and health of, of, of individuals. So I think it is a little bit shameful and embarrassing for the government to try and, you know, jump on this horse of we're going to do something about this now when you've got people that have been talking about this for years upon years upon years. And I think it kind of speaks to the, the wider incompetence of the governors of our game here domestically, but internationally as well. I would really like the, the, the governors to do something radical and quick with this, because as I said earlier on, if, if they don't move on this very, very soon, I'm telling you something really, really bad is going to happen. And I think that then they'll react then. But my thing is, why react when something bad has happened? Why not react now when the evidence, the research, the journalism has all been done to show us, and we've been pre-warned, this Jimenez situation and others that John mentioned earlier, Earlier on, these are all pre-warnings that are showing us if we don't move on this very, very soon, the worst will happen. And that's something that I really, really fear. Yeah. How do you think the game should respond, Anton? You know, certainly at, at lower levels, there's there's a very slow move towards no heading for young players. Obviously, that would change the nature of the game entirely. And, you know, someone like yourself, who, you know, had a terrific career heading, heading balls out of your own box... What impact would that have? And should we be looking at things as radical as that? No heading. I think it'd be nearby impossible to take that out of the game. That's for sure. It is about, for me, how we, how we deal with it. Like, like Jordan said, it just shows and, and highlights how much as a sport and as, as a sport, we are reactive rather than proactive. And I think it just highlights that. And I think, the best way to, for, for us to become proactive is to have people who, who are close to people that have suffered from dementia within the sport. The likes of Chris Sutton, who's been fantastic in speaking on, on this issue, who's going through with, with his father, who was an ex-player. But to, to lean on him and ask him the implications of, of, of how it's affected him and his family, I think you can only become understanding when you have a conversation with somebody who's lived it, who, who's been a part of it. And I think until that, them, them things start to happen, and we can talk about that in terms of the wider issues within football, but as we're speaking about dementia, I think that's what we need to look at is tapping into somebody who's experienced it closely to give, to give the authorities their view on it and how they can deal with it better. And I think people, they're never going to fully feel what it is until they've gone through it. But when talking to somebody that's gone through it, there's an under, you can understand it. And I think that's where the, the, the best help can come from. Yeah, you only have to go into Dawn Astle's sitting room and she's got a, a school exercise book. And there are about 500 names written into that book. And they're more added on literally a daily basis. You know, she has literally or barely slept in the last couple of weeks after the outpouring of sympathy for Bobby Charlton's uh, diagnosis with with d- dementia. Anton, you know, I've, there are a couple of you know friends, funny enough, former goalkeepers, around about your age. They're now going to go and get themselves checked out because they 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 feel that they've had concussions down the down the years. Do you see more players doing that now? Yeah, I'm sure there will be more players doing it. it people speaking about it highlights dementia 
people, more people speaking about it, more people having a conversation, and it highlights it. So it will put people on 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 the alert to go and think. You know what? I need to get myself checked to make sure that I'm that I'm not going to suffer from it. The only thing I would say is that is, is there's a massive difference in terms of the the ball that we're using then to now. You know, the ball's a lot lighter. It ain't as it ain't as as hurtful as the ball that the likes of Bobby Charlton and and, and these legends were, were using years ago. That potentially could play a part in having a difference. But I think, yeah, the conversation is 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 allowing people to now look at themselves and go, do I need to go and get checked? Which is a positive thing. Yeah. Looking at it broadly, John, Frank Lampard, who seems to be really maturing very quickly as a manager, and he's not a, afraid to address the biggest issues... He's looking at refining his training in the light of these fears. Do you think that's something also that other managers will be thinking about doing? Yeah, I do. I do think they will. I think it would be really interesting to know just how much. Anton, you probably have a good insight in this over the course of your career, but it would be really interesting to know how kind of heading practice has evolved. Because let's be honest here, we don't. I don't think we we the game itself the 90 minutes features as many headers as it used to I know it's pretty simplistic but I'd love to see the stats on that but I bet I bet they don't and and the worry I think for the modern manager is totally get on take on board that the balls are lighter but they are hit with greater velocity and now arrive with greater speed so I think you're basically you know the speed you used to get hit at on on you know on the ball and it, it isn't as as high as it is now and I think, therefore, I think that's prompted the modern manager to go, we're not quite sure of the implications of the modern game, the modern ball, and what we, what we could be facing in, in, say, skip two generations' time, if you like, which is what, obviously, the, the crisis which is hitting former players now. So I think that, basically, the more erudite, deep-thinking managers will be thinking about the duty of care for their player and thinking, do I need to do that in training? Do, do I have to work on that? Do I have to change it? And I think one very obvious thing would be to remove, I think, at a very young age, they're heading for football, uh, for, for kids, basically, to change that. And I think that would be an obvious thing. But I do think that Frank Lampard touched on a very interesting point there, because I think he will be thinking about it from his career. Gareth Southgate, talked about how he's concerned about his own health situation moving forward, thinking about getting tested and his own concerns about it for himself, obviously as a, as a central defender come midfielder. I, I think a lot of managers will move in this direction. And I actually think that that will further decrease the, the amount of times that you, you see headers. I mean, who are the great headers in our game at the moment? particularly in terms of strikers, I mean, really, because you obviously you've got you've got to be sort of kind of even for a defender, you've got to be challenging someone in the air to then to be made to make an aerial challenge. It was interesting, wasn't it? Last week we had so much talk about what a great header Olivier Giroud is of the ball. Well, I think we do that because there's so few around. I'm not saying that completely eradicates the problem, but I do think that basically subconsciously and indeed consciously now because of the managers like Lampard will will move away because of these because of those fears and I can't pretend that I don't think that that's ultimately probably a good thing for the for the sake and welfare of players. Yeah, Chelsea obviously Lampard will come under the influence also of of Petr Cech who obviously has experience in this area. I just want to 
go on, if I may, Jordan, into what's coming this week. We've got another Champions League week. Chelsea uh, in Seville, they've put it to bed, as have City. I just want to look at the broader implications of young players excelling in the Champions League. And I'm thinking specifically of of Jadon Sancho and uh, Jude Bellingham at uh, Dortmund. Now, Dortmund lost at the weekend to Cologne. Bellingham was unused substitute. But they're almost now the new role models, aren't they? The, the players like that, you know, someone like Jaden, who's been developed through cage football in many ways as well. What we what are the limits of what they can achieve? Uh, there are no limits. I, th- I think the talents of of both of those individuals, I think, means that as long as they continue to apply themselves, and I think equally as importantly, surround themselves with the right people, which is what I think they are doing. I don't see why they can't go on to 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 to, to elite level. You combine right environment with talent and hard work. These these guys could could be the best players in the world in the next five or ten years. They, as, as some of the other British players who've gone to Germany, have put themselves in what I call the right kind of pressure. So they're not under the scrutiny of being young talents here in England, where we're expecting them to be, you know, the new Messi within a year. And then they have four or five bad games. And I actually, he's not that good, actually. But they're not, but they're also in a type of pressure where there's expectations. Dortmund are not a small club. So let's not make up there's no pressure playing for Borussia Dortmund. There's, there's pressure there. But for me, it's the right kind of pressure. And I've always thought that the German model of and their approach to youngsters is very, very similar to the American approach, which is if we can create and, and groom and build rounded young men, we have a significantly higher chance of producing young sports stars. And I don't, that doesn't always work. But generally, if you, if you produce and, and have young men who are, are polite and respectful and intelligent and understand the world, combine that with elite coaching, you'd you, you, you go some way to kind of going wrong with those talents. And I think when you listen to people like Jaden Sancho speak, he's from where I'm from, just around the corner here in South London. I know people that know him and I know people like him. He's just a normal guy from, from, from South London that had a talent. But I think that when you take him out of the, the, the environment of England and you put him in that structure, I, I think he's allowed to, to develop and to grow and to become a rounded young man alongside being coached I also think that the the pathway to kind of becoming an elite player in Germany is very interesting as well without kind of falling into lazy stereotypes about the Germans being economically shrewd I think their approach to to, 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 to talent is well rather than spending 50 60 million pounds on an 18 year old player why don't we develop try and develop 10, 20 in one season. And you never know, two or three of them might turn out to be the next 60 million pound player, which I think economically is a very intelligent approach to developing talent and to building a footballing culture rather than just having to rely on buying the best talent from across the world. I think they do that alongside a club like Madrid, do it very well, Porto do it very well. Let's invest our millions in in, in coaching. Ajax do it very well and then sell them off for a hundred million because Jadon Sancho will go for a hundred million pounds when he does eventually leave. And I think that the English clubs can learn a thing or two about their approach to, 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 to developing young, to young players and young men. Mm, yeah, taking up that point about the importance of character, uh, Anton, you know, you came from Peckham, a huge hotbed of football, great talent there. 
If you're talking to young players or aspiring players today... There's more from Brixton, by the way. Sorry, Mike. There's more talent that comes out of Brixton. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not getting into turf wars. No turf wars here, boys. You know, but what are the key messages, Anton, that you develop, that you have developed when you're talking to young players? What do you tell them this is the important stuff? For me, is obviously the, the work ethic, first and foremost, has to be right. You know, you need to understand, especially coming from, from Peckham, the likes of Jaden who grew up on the state, literally a, a, a five-minute walk from my state. But the work ethic has to be there. But alongside the work ethic, you have to have the right people around you because it's easy to get sucked into another way of life, being on from an estate. But if you've got the right people around you, like I did, like Rio did, like Jaden has, who tell you your life, you've got a way out of it. So your way out is football. Make sure you utilise that. I think that's 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 one of the most important things is is having people around you that that are willing to to tell you the truth and and make sure that you're accountable for what your, your actions and I think that's where the difference between people who have been successful coming out of of a council estate to people that that haven't. I mean, I, I, me and Rio are probably a, a, a perfect example. Myself, definitely, I wasn't the best player of my age group within my estate but I had a support network from from two wonderful um, parents but, but also I had friends around me that said listen we're going out tonight but you're not coming you got football tomorrow go home you know and I think that for me that was the difference between me and the guys who were better than me on my estate yeah and it, it there is a buzz around the young player, isn't there, John? You know, I remember you and I talking about Jude Bellingham when no one had heard of him, sort of three, four, five years ago. When you look at that, the, the new name that's being talked about at the moment is Jamal Muzilera, creating a, a bit of a buzz at Bayern. He's only 17. You've spoken to Southgate about him, haven't you? Yes, and, all, and, and also the um, kid of Valencia, Yunus Musa. Obviously, different country, but then also a bit involved, a bit more of a, a tug of war. And, and and Southgate, I think, likes them, likes them both. Really, wants to tap into into the young talent. And I think that Gareth Southgate, what what he does with kids is is, is sensational. Really, I mean, I was amazed, Mike, frankly, that about some of the criticism that Southgate took over calling up Jude Bellingham. I think that that's not understanding what England have got on their hands with Jude Bellingham. Jude Bellingham, I think, is a generational talent who, who frankly, is going to has got the potential to be one of the best players in the world. And I, I hate to kind of lump on pressure on players and so on, but honestly, I find it amazing that basically just because the kid's been at Birmingham, so not in, in a top level one academy, it's the snobbery that's gone around, I think, that basically he's not seen as the next Wayne Rooney. Well, he is of the Rooney mould, of that level of talent. I mean, different player, obviously. But it's just a, an astonishing player who has absolutely got the best people around him, by the way. He's bided his time because the massive clubs have been after him because they could pick him off, basically, because he was at Birmingham and, and that level of academy for basically kind of a very low fee or a bit of a dodgy deal but he's resi resisted every overture to make the right career path and choice for himself and I think that that is with with Dortmund and then similarly I just find it so interesting that that 
other players are making strides and going and, and, and playing, whether it be Spain as in Yunus Musa or, or indeed the, the, going down the sort of kind of German route elsewhere. Because I think the difference there is that you won't get any sort of backlash uh, about promoting kids too soon. And yet you get here cynical comments saying, why is Bellingham ahead of, I don't know, randomly sort of kind of Ross Barkley? Well, Bellingham's a different, totally different project, an example to, to, to Barkley. Barkley, I think, should be in the England squad. But, but we're not talking about either or. We're talking about Bellingham giving the opportunity to be around the squad for his long-term development because he's that good. We shouldn't make it that sort of comparison. Bellingham, I think, is is just a sensational talent. And I think, luckily, because there's others around as well that are coming through, Sancho's having a difficult season, isn't he? I think that basically, you know, form-wise, I think he's clearly been affected, anyone would be, by what happened last summer. I think he thought he was going to go, and now does he get, does he still go to Man United next summer? Or is it, could it be Liverpool? Or I think all these things are swirling around in his head. And it's very difficult because I think Borussia Dortmund are amongst the best but nurturing young players, but even they are finding it clearly a bit of a struggle against this against this backdrop. But I think that that they are the reason why Bellingham wanted to go to to Germany to the Bundesliga ahead of Man United when they were clear. You know, he's getting other offers elsewhere, by the way, for far greater money. But he's sensible. He's got great parents. He's got good people around him to guide him for the long term. And I I think that's great that we've got a certain generation now who can see other players making these intelligent decisions about their futures really, and, and, and not just making it sort of kind of because they want to sign for Man United, Liverpool or whoever it might be for here and now, they want to make a long-term decision for the good of their futures. And I think that's great. It's probably a lesson also to English football. That it's about time we started actually giving these kids a chance. Because- I was going to just... Yeah, I was just I was just gonna say um, I think in this country, Mike, we are drunk on money, and I think that if we take again my club as an example, there's a lot of talk about the need of for a creative player. Uh, we've got to sign someone in January. We've got to sign someone next year. We've got to sign Owa. Well, how about coaching Willock? How about coaching Reese Nelson? How about coaching these young players that Arsenal currently have? When are, when are we as English clubs going to learn the lessons that Germany are showing us year on year on year? If you spend more of your money on coaching, you will not only save yourself a lot of money at the back end, but you will have two, three, four talented young players that will be the envy of the world in your team. People talk about, oh, we can never have the, the golden era of the United side with Beckham and the Nevilles and all those players. I think you can. Some of these top, top Premier League clubs are producing top, top talent. They're, they're doing the, the hard work in bringing them through, but then they, they let themselves down by not finishing the job off. And I just think at some point, England has to learn from Germany and, and, and look at what they're doing and think, and we don't have to spend £100 million on a, on a player that we sold in Man City's case in the first place. Just develop the talent that you have. Mm, spot on. I think if Willock goes elsewhere, it will come back and he'll haunt Arsenal. Because he's got that talent. You've just got to nurture it. And he's such an exciting player. And I just think he'll be, I don't know, I think Jordan's absolutely spot on there because I think the the, the reality is that if he's not given the chance, and I think they might panic in this dangerous time and not give him the chance. And it, it will be it will be a terrible mistake. With the right with the right club and the right talent, the right sort of co- coaching around him, he can be a star. Yeah. Do you think... Anton, you know, I was speaking you know, recently to Thomas Hitzelsberger, who's chief exec at, uh, at Stuttgart now. Obviously, he took Nat Phillips on loan there last season. 
you know, he says, look, yeah, I'm, I'll be up front. I'm looking at young English players here. Do you think more young English players, and I'm, by then I'm thinking sort of 17, 18, 19 years old, will go to the Bundesliga? Yeah, I think Jaden is the, the showcase for that on, on how well he's done, you know. I find that in what I'm doing now with Neuro Global Sports Management, speaking and mentoring to these young players, that a lot of them ain't afraid to go abroad. You say to them, okay, you haven't got a scholarship here in here in um, in in England. Their first thing is, okay, well, I'm open to going abroad, like Jaden did, you know. And, and I think that just shows you he's the catalyst for that. But I'm hearing you guys speak, and and I fully agree with with with, with Jordan about what he's saying about. Germany, Germany has shown us the way, you know. They won the World Cup, but they had been planning for that World Cup years years, years before, you know. We're in a position where we've got a, a, a talent of young players coming through, a high percentage of young players coming through that are talented. Some of them we've lost to, to, to other countries in terms of playing in, in the top leagues, like you see Porto have bought a young West Ham player who was an under-15, 16 last year. They bought him. They bought a player from from Reading who's going to go into their first team at, at some point. So they're showing us how things should be done. But it's how we nurture them to come through and give them an opportunity. And I think that alludes to the pressure that is on managers within the Premier League. The, the pressure from upstairs. We have to win. We have to stay in the Premier League. Stay in the Premier League is it, it, more than 100 million to, uh, pounds to a football club to stay in the Premier League. The pressure is that great on managers that they're going, you know what? I can't afford to put someone in who has to learn on the job. You know, I was lucky enough that I was at a football club in West Ham that allowed me to learn on the job, learn in their first team. I never went on loan. I was never allowed to go on loan. And I had to learn in the first team. I made a lot of mistakes, but I had a, a fan base who were willing to give me the opportunity to learn. I had a manager who had faith in me that knew I was going to learn within the first team. And he took that risk of me. The kids nowadays ain't getting that that put on them. They ain't getting that type of that type of love. And I think that's where we're 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 a step behind. Yeah. You watched Manchester United yesterday, John, uh, at Southampton. You know, the original game of two halves, that one, wasn't it? You've got Greenwood coming through there. You know, Marcus Rashford is, if you're going to have a role model, there's your role model. What sort of mood music is there around Manchester United these days? <laughs> First half, incredibly negative. Second half, oh, it, we could be onto something here, couldn't we? And it, it always feels that basically Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is only ever one one defeat. He can have three great wins, but it's all undone because you plunge back into crisis after one defeat. And I'm not sure whether you can go for the long term un under that sort of pressure, really. I also think that, that this is Man United. I think Man United really should be competing and pushing at a different level. I think, while I think this season wasn't about Man United winning the title, I think they should have been challenging for it. And I think it's a very open Premier League this season. But I still think they'll be pushing for, for the top four and I think that'll be their level. And I'm not quite sure that that's enough, really. I, you know, I still think that it didn't work in, in, the, in the transfer window. We were chatting before we came on about sort of the need for a centre-half. 
clearly they wanted Jaden Sancho. That that was a deal gone wrong. They should have realised from very early on and looked elsewhere that Dortmund are not going to change their position on that financially. And they've sold themselves short for the season. I understand the kind of the financial implications and it's affected all clubs, including United. But I just think that it, it, they're still, I think, squad-wise, some way short of where they wanted to be. You've looked at the second half of last season and it built up the hope and expectation that Solskjaer might actually be able to take him. We'd love a fairy tale of Solskjaer, the United hero, the United legend, turning into sort of kind of maker as manager. But I, I'm I'm not feeling that. And I just think that sooner or later, I think they'll just end up pushing the button on Maurizio Pochettino. And I think that's the right way to go. And I think they'll have to improve the recruitment to, to get where they want to be, even under, you know, a, a different class and an experience of manager. And um, I just think that United continue to frustrate us, really. I mean, it was a brilliant game, I have to say. And the, and the way Fernandez was the snapshot of it. So poor in the first half, brilliant in the second half. And then Cavani, you know, although they've signed a 33-year-old, they've signed a proper player there who, frankly, was known, wasn't he, sort of kind of, you know, through the glory days of his career, as missing as many as he scored. Well, he, he couldn't, you know, he missed one actual sitter yesterday, but his two goals were phenomenal of a, of a class, experienced, proven striker who showed the difference in the second half when he replaced Greenwood. And that's the long and short of it at the moment. Greenwood is going to be a fabulous talent. But again, he needs management and, and nurturing. And I just think that bringing in Cavani is a great solution to that because he's in the autumn of his career and that allows you to dip in and out between the two. Yeah, we've got to look at the aftermath of that game. Sadly, you've got the FA who are now probing a deleted social media post by Cavani, which appeared to contain an offensive Spanish phrase that has some sort of racial connotation. He said he used that term affectionately, but there's still some talk about a three-match ban. And that brings us on to the issue of, of race in, in, in modern football in England. Anton, your documentary is going out this evening. You know, a fantastic watch, a very important story. In telling that story, what influence do you hope that your experiences will have because this is a, about isn't it much more than you and John Terry isn't it yeah for me it's about positive change more than anything it's and I say this a lot I, it, it's bigger than me and him and 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 the fight that we're in at the moment I think it, it just tells you it's bigger than me and him it's bigger than one incident I mean I was very clear with the BBC when was first approached more than two years ago about doing a documentary, I was very clear to them that if this was a documentary that was going to be based on Anton versus John, then I didn't want any part of it, you know. But if it was going to be based on on making positive change, then I'm all for that. And I think that's how we are going to make changes is by dipping into people's experiences like myself and someone who's willing to talk about his experiences for the likes of the FA, the governing body, the PFA, kick it out to realise that they they didn't handle the situation or the incident the way that they should have done. And I think people, for me, needed to understand what it was I went through. I didn't quite understand what I went through, if I'm honest, until doing the documentary and, and not just doing it, but watching it back and, and being able to watch the documentary through 
one of my family members' eyes because I couldn't take myself out of the screen, look at it by myself, as myself, as a viewer. So I looked at it as a family member and it made me understand I, I wasn't right. I was very, I thought I was okay at the time. I thought I was just playing football and getting on with it. It was only until years later I realised and understood I wasn't the same person that I was, that I was before that. And for me, that was the reason, reasoning behind making documentary was about influencing positive change. People understanding the, the ripple effects of what can happen, whether it be to your family members, yourself, you know, and, and people around you. I thought it was important and imperative that people understood that so they could look at it and go, do you know what? Things have to change. You know, those experiences you talk about, bullets being sent through the post, your mum being abused, having missiles thrown at the family house, you know, that's almost beyond comprehension. It's, you know, inevitably, it's traumatic, isn't it? Did you ever fear for your career in the aftermath of all that controversy? Because you remain silent, but all, it, almost as an outsider, I look at it and I think we were almost stigmatised for being honest. Yeah. I sit here today and wish I wasn't silent at the time. I wish I would have taken control of of the the narrative. I allowed people to narrate for me, you know, rather than me controlling the story and me telling my truth from the from the get go. And by me doing that, would have allowed people to not write what they want and what they thought they saw, you know. So I sit here today and wish I did do that. And that was a burden that I've carried with me for a very very long time. But I also feel that, and I know now, I was scared to speak up because of the whirlwind around it. Because of, of, I had no get out, I had no, everywhere I turned it was there. Whether it be on my phone, whether it be me walking down the street, the abuse that I received walking down the street was daily. You know, So it was hard for me to escape it and to make a decision to go and speak out. It just wasn't there. I didn't have it in me because it was always there. And I think those those things there did implicate and have an implication on my footballing career. I played 200 and odd games for that game and I only played 10 or 11 after it. That tells you that that incident played a massive part in my footballing career. Yeah. I suppose that one of the questions that, that you raise is whether football truly wants to address what's a really deep-seated societal issue as much as anything else. Jordan, Kick It Out reported a 53% increase in reported racial abuse in the 1920 season. Is the problem getting worse? Uh, I suppose it is, but I say that with reluctance, Mike, because I'm not one of these people that that, uh, comes out and says... Oh, it's getting worse. Because if you say it's getting worse, the implication there slightly is that it was getting better at any point. And for me, it wasn't. We just There was just, I think, a new breed of racism within football forming. So just because, you know, we wasn't seeing certain banners or certain phrases being shouted at football players on the pitch anymore, which we saw in the 70s and 80s, people thought that it'd gone away. And for me, I, I've, I've got elders that, that have always said to me that racism still exists in football and it always has done through the 90s and the noughties. It's just taking a different type of form. I, I, I'm really excited to watch the documentary tonight because I think what's important is that it's a documentary that's been, it's not a documentary about racism in football. It's firsthand from somebody who's been at the 
center of this particular this evil and and that's why i'm really interested to watch this i think one of the, my memories of that case at the time was and this links back in a way to our initial discussion around the issue of heading and and protecting players who have had clash head, head clashes i remember the discussion being not so much about what john terry was alleged to have said but more so about how it would impact England's chances at the next major tournament. And by taking him out, it's going to impact England's chances. And I thought, oh, okay. So once again, we're putting results and trophies and winning over the protecting of, of a player. In this case, it was, it was Anton. And I think the similar things happening with, with, with the, with the heading of players as well. Regarding the FA, I, I, I've long given up on having any faith that the FA are going to fix this problem. I don't, I'll just say, I don't have any belief that they even want to address this because if the FA really wanted to show teeth in fighting this evil, they would. I think their handling of a couple of high profile cases in recent years involving the likes of Peter Beardsley and Kiko Casillas show me that they don't particularly care and they have poor managing of these scenarios and that for me is is rooted in the fact that they don't have any diversity on their board I'm very interested to see who they appoint as the new chair of the Football Association because if you don't really have anybody on that board that really understands what it's like to be to be racially abused how can you then truly understand how to fight this evil and I think that I think the three other stakeholders within the game the football fans the football players and the football media have really now the opportunity to grab this 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 issue and combat it I've, I've long given up in expecting FIFA UEFA the Premier League and the FA to do what they need to do to fight this they don't care they they, they, they clearly don't care enough so fine We'll, we'll do with it ourselves. I think we have to, in some respects, without making it too political, have to fight this a little bit like the government in our country, bottom up, rather than expecting things to change from top down. Do you identify with that, those sort of sentiments, Anton? Yeah, well, I do. I, I fully agree with Jordan on the fact that the board, and especially within, with, with, within football, I feel like the boards across the, the organisation need to mirror the game. You know, when we're talking about the FA, the FA's board or people that are walking, working around the chairman of the FA need to mirror what every age group at England is, which is diverse. You know, our first team is diverse. Why shouldn't the organisation mirror that in terms of the, the board and in terms of the people working around the chairman? You know, I think we, we just got to look at if someone was around Greg Clark he wouldn't have used the terminology he used because he would have been educated to go, do you know, people would have said to him, listen, you can't speak like that. And I think that's where having diversity on the board or people and, not or, and around the chairman on a day-to-day working basis will educate educate him and educate people around that, that sector to say, listen, you can't speak like that. And I think it's not about just having can't just be okay we're gonna tick a box and have ethnic minorities on the board or around the chairman it has to be the right people people. totally it has to be the right people and what i mean by the right people and this is my view the right people are people that that and there's a difference in this that ain't gonna challenge his authority but they're gonna challenge him or her to be better and i think that's where we got that's where i think that's where there's it's not black and white and it's cloudy i feel personally that the board members and the people that have been chairmen before before us, they think that 
authorities are going to come in and challenge their authority. No, we want to challenge you to be better. And the way that we can challenge you to be better is have people who have experienced racial incidents that can help educate because these guys ain't never going to feel the way that I felt because they ain't never going to be racially abused. But what they can do is be understanding. And the only way they can be understanding is by listening and being around people who have experienced it. And I'm not saying that has to be me. Yes, my door's open. And it always has been. That's for every organisation, for me to help help positive change. But until they get the right people, people that can, people that are the right, people that can, can go that in can there relate, and, and represent myself. Like. Yeah. yeah, people that can represent me properly, represent ethnic minorities properly, you know, people that understand and know what it's about and how, what it feels like. Until there's people like that in the building, we're always going to be we're going to be fighting at a loss. I think. Just briefly, Mike. Sorry as well. I think football has a has a has a problem like other sports don't. Now, I'm not dumb enough to think that there aren't racist cricket fans, rugby fans, tennis fans. Of course, there are. But football is a, it creates an environment that allows people to do things that they that they shouldn't do. I don't know about you guys, but I've never seen it a banana thrown on centre court at Wimbledon. I've never seen at Twickenham a banner that says racist comments. I've never seen anybody at the F1 on on the front on the front row of a stand racially abusing Lewis Hamilton. I don't see that. They're there, but the difference is football fans are, are allowed to, to feel like they can get away with it. And football and the FA and the Premier League have to create an environment now whereby if you're a racist person, what you say at home is your business. We can't control that. That's your business. That's your home. But when you come into this environment, you can't do that because you won't get away with the sanctions will mean that you're going to think very very long and hard about what you say and just finally i think sports media we have a job to play in this as well and the example i always use as well because it's not just about throwing bananas and calling people the n-word i think there's subtle forms of racism as well and the example i always use is paul pogba and the reason why i think we need more representation in sports media and more black people as i am slowly seeing is the nuances of understanding a football player like him. When I hear people commentate on Paul Pogba, they conflate Paul Pogba the man with Paul Pogba the player. So when Paul Pogba dances and Paul Pogba's at home with his family having a good time, when Paul Pogba does a certain hairstyle, these are things that culturally, us as black people, we do. We like to dance. We like to express ourselves in certain ways that reflect who we are as a people. That should not come into play when judging Paul Pogba being poor or good on a football pitch. And I think if you have better representation in sports media, I think you, you better understand those sorts of nuances of the players that we're talking about. Black people make up, I think it's a third of Premier League players are black. So I think the people that are reporting and talking about those players have have to be representative of those players as well. Yeah, and I would ex- uh, accept that. And as someone who's been around press boxes for a long time, you know, as you have, John, as well, you know, we did go through a stage where you know, there were very few black faces in the press box. You know, obviously, you know, our friend and colleague Darren Lewis. There's a new generation of, of very talented young black journalists coming through at the moment. I suppose a point for you, John. In the broadest sense, should we be going beyond symbolism in all this now. You know, if you think about taking a knee, it had a great impact initially, but almost it's now part of the formalities and, and, and there's no there's no sense of almost meaning behind it. Shouldn't we all be thinking of the substance of the issue here? 
Yeah, I, I do think that the slight issue with sort of taking of the knee is like it's it gets a sort of a tip of the hat and a sort of acknowledgement, doesn't it, on the highlights program? You know, whichever one you watch, basically at the weekend, and that's about it, really. It's I, I don't, and I think the worry is that basically it did have a major impact at first, I think, and basically made people sort of kind of take take notice, whether you agree with it or not. But it still take still took a notice, and then basically, I think you you're slightly losing you're in danger of losing that impact. I do think I do feel that that basically with the the FA they're clearly not looking for a former player are they for the chairman and and, and they've made that pretty clear from day 1 that they're basically that's not in their thoughts at all that, that you know they'll go for someone on the board and better diversity and representation on the board but not a former player as chairman I I just think that's a struggle for for players no matter what background he comes from or that she comes from, I'm not sure that basically players will will look up and accept that and see that that's someone they can relate to. Could they relate to Greg Clark? No, you know. So so that's an that's that's an issue, isn't it? Really, that I don't think football is is addressing. And you know, I I actually think that the, the football media world is is changing and it, it is developing. I you know, and and I think that's that that's a really good thing. I mean, you know, and I I think that's a positive change but I think throughout football that needs to change as well and I, I, I think that basically that, that's all, it almost feels slower in other aspects of, of, of football that, that, that's being embraced and I think that's sad I think it's so sad that basically you've got the FA Chief Executive coming out and basically immediately saying well the chairman won't be a former player, I just don't understand that, how, how you can come to that conclusion, you know, I think Mark Bullingham's really good by the way but I don't know why you would make that your your start point, basically. You're you're almost ruling them out because you haven't got that experience. Well, how are you going to get gain experience? I just don't get it. You, you you if you follow that route and logic, you'll you'll be in this perpetuating cycle of never addressing it. Anton, you talk in the film, don't you, about it, the power of personal experience. So you know you talk about the influence that Rene Hector, the the Spurs player, had on you in sharing her experiences of being racially abused. Yeah, that was a big moment for me to hear someone else who who understood every feeling and emotion that I've that I had because she had it too, to sit there and say to me, listen, the fact that you're talking up, the fact that you didn't talk then, don't be ashamed of that. The fact that you're speaking now is as important now than it would have been nine years ago. So be proud of yourself. And that, that was a big moment for me within the documentary when she said it to me. It allowed me to to process things and, and, and move on to a stage where it was about helping and I could physically go out and help people. As you will see in a documentary, I go out and speak to a young West Ham team, young 23s, about, about, about the incident and about moving forward, how I potentially could help them if anything ever happens. But I, I think also it, it, it goes to the fact of I'm saying about using people's experience I don't understand, like John said, I don't understand how a former player ain't in the conversation to be the chairman of the FA. He's got the know-how. You know, when you talk about the other side of, of being a chairman, the admin and all of that, that type of stuff, that's where you have people, the people with, with, that work around you, they're there to help you. But the most important thing is when an incident or something arises, is there someone who's experienced this who's going to be able to speak about it? 
someone that ain't played football won't understand or won't be able to, to speak on a matter regarding football the way that someone is that's played the game. That's impossible. But it always alludes to, for me, it has to be the right person. I think that's what we're, 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 we're getting into a situation now where there's a lot of box ticking. There is a lot of box ticking that's going on. Okay, yeah, we've done that. Look, there's a lot more ethnic minorities that are doing press now. There's a lot more ethnic minorities we're bringing into the FA. But are they the right people? They have to be the right people. Jordan, who would you pick as the next FA chairman? Well, the person I would pick, as I think he's turned it down already, he said he doesn't want it, Les Ferdinand. Yeah. I think Les Ferdinand is a person that understands the game, has played the game. I think he's respected amongst everybody. I think he's got experience. I mean, Anton mentions the idea of, of, the, of admin, of running an organisation. Well, he's done that. He's doing that at the moment. So for me, he's the person that I think ticks the most, the most amount of box. I'm not just saying that because he's a relative of Anton's, but I think when I think of the person who I think speaks on not only the issue of race very well, but just football. Let's not, let's not be in a bubble of the FA has to be the kind of race relations officer. The person who runs the FA has to, has to deal with a myriad of, of issues across, across English football. But I think if we're talking about race here, he's the person that I believe understands it, gets it, and I think will be very progressive and very aggressive with trying to make change. But I want to this very quickly, if I can, Mike, ask Anton, what he thinks current players could and should be doing to use their their power and their platforms to 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 rid this evil because you mentioned mike about you know some players when they're playing and especially in your time anton maybe felt like they couldn't speak up when they were playing for fear of losing their job or being blacklisted what what would you want you want to see players doing now using their power because some of the most high profile players are, are, are black I think now is a different time to when when my incident happened. When my incident happened, I was shut down immediately. Um, I wasn't allowed to tweet. I was shut down immediately. But now players, and that shows progression, because nowadays players are allowed to, to voice and tweet and post on Instagram their feelings on, on what's happening and what's happened without any repercussions. So I think that's, that there's great strides that have, have happened in with that, but I do think when 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 it was happening with me, no players didn't want to stand next to me. They didn't want to be associated with me because they were in fearful of of losing their place in their team or or fearful of being 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 frozen out, you know. And and I think now I think we need to even more now more than ever we need to come together. I think you look at the NBA, so to speak. It's a great advocate on. The players, and we're not. I'm not just talking ethnic minorities, and and this is what I allude to in my documentary. There can't be segregation when talking about issues. Everybody has to talk about these issues: white, black, Asian, China. Everyone has to speak about these issues in the way they need to be spoken about. And that's why I didn't want to make a documentary that that only had black people talking about racism. That's a broken record for me. I think personally, I think if we're going to make serious change. Need the likes of, like on my documentary, Gary Lineker, Henry Winter, Jordan Henderson, speaking about racism in a passionate and positive way. And I think that's where, as a, as a unity within football, everybody needs to speak about it. Yeah, well, I'll finish, if I may, with a, with a personal story. A little while ago, a couple of years ago, I did a book with Gareth Thomas, the former Wales and British Lions rugby captain. 
He showed fantastic moral courage in addressing his suicidal episodes and the private fears he felt before acknowledging his sexuality. It sounds pretty trite now, but when we were writing that book, we said, if we get this right, we can save people's lives. Now, when we published it, we found that out to be true. Anton's done some great work with his documentary. It shines a harsh light on all of us, and that's no bad thing. Racism is a modern evil, and football needs to be more aware of its responsibilities. By challenging the game's conscience, Anton will influence others. What do you think? Please let me know. And so in the meantime, thanks to Jordan, John, and to you, Anton, and everyone for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.